Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay their hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in, his, in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Do you ever play a game against someone who's just exponentially better at it than you are? Um, I, I frequently find myself in this situation, but uh, it seems to be a, a life theme of mine. I had a brother, and you might know him, six years older than me, which is a terrible burden for a six-year younger brother because he's exponentially better at you than everything because he's six years older. But we uh, one summer, my parents had built us a half-court basketball hoop out in the yard. I poured the concrete half-court, put a new hoop up, and I really wanted to play basketball and wanted to get better at playing basketball. And so sometimes he would entertain me, and we'd go out, we'd play basketball, we'd play one-on-one or shoot hoops or whatever. But sometimes we'd get to playing, and, and uh, we'd, we'd get to going, and I'd start scoring some points. And then Sure enough, maybe I'd end up, he'd miss some and I'd make them and all of a sudden I'm beating my brother at basketball and I'd get real excited and start kind of having a little swagger and walk up to the, walk up to the top of the key and check the ball to him. And, and, and at that point, what does my brother say? Do you know? He says, I haven't even been trying yet. (laughs) Do you want me to start trying? And I'd say, you know, and then I'm immediately, I see red. I'm like, oh yeah, right. You're trying. Yeah, you're not trying, you know, and start talking him down. And sure. And how does the rest of the game go? I don't score another point. He blocks every shot I, I, I attempt. He makes every layup. He just drives around me. You know, he's six years older. I, I can't. And he is able to back up what he says. I'm unable to, to he just, he, he's saying to me, just so you know, I'm letting you win up to this point. And he was right. That's what he was doing. It bore out and in, 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 in how it ended up playing. I thought I was winning fair and square, but that isn't what was going on. He was letting me win. And now you can take time to psychoanalyze me later. But, but right now, uh, just, this is, this is a, 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 a for, it's kind of an illustration of, of what I think is going on in this text with Jesus and these leaders. I mentioned this story because we're seeing some of these same things going on here in the life of Jesus. He is showing his absolute power over every circumstance. And that's been the theme all the way that we've come along through the Gospel of Luke. If you remember 
you know, year ago, year and a half ago, we started talking about Jesus has authority over nature, over demons, over sickness. Jesus just is displaying this incredible authority. He's, he has command of everything. And that, that we haven't lost that theme. Jesus is still showing he has authority even over others' intentions. That's the big idea here. Jesus is, has, is revealing his absolute power over every circumstance. The religious leaders want him dead. They want him dead. That's what they're saying here. They want to put their hands on him. They want to, they want to get rid of him. But they, and, and they're so close to getting it. Here he is in Jerusalem. All they have to do is catch him and saying something he shouldn't say or make him look a fool before his people. And then the whole Jesus rabbi, this whole event just is gone if they can just get rid of Jesus. And they, they're just adamant to get rid of him. But Jesus is consistently letting them know that he'll go when he decides it's his time to go. He's not going to be anyone's, under anyone's thumb. He's not going to be shoved around. He's going to go when it's his time and when he decides so. So our big idea for this morning is simply this, that Jesus will not die on anyone else's schedule or for any other purpose but his own. Jesus will not die on anyone else's schedule or for any other purposes than his own. Now, if you listen to the text this morning, you're thinking, wait a second, Darren, this text is about taxes. <laughs> I thought Jesus is, this is, we have this famous saying, right? Render to Caesar or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. It's a very common phrase. It's very well known. It's one of the most famous, especially on taxes, on government rights that, that Jesus says. Isn't this section about taxes? And I suppose there is one way of, of seeing that because we do have this, this statement in here that Jesus, it, it's happened. It's happened like it happens. We see it over and over again. We thank somebody, we like him, and all of a sudden they go political on us. And here it's happened. Now it's happened to Jesus even. We thought he was such a good guy, and now he started talking politics. It'd be nice. Why doesn't he just stay in a less controversial topic like religion? You know, that's where he should stay. But Jesus, it seems as though he goes political here. But th that's an aspect of it. And just to say briefly... It, it is right, and I mean, I read so many commentaries on this, and, and people spend a ton of time with this aspect and, uh, of, of talking about how it is right to be under, and okay to be under a secular pagan authority and give them the, the things that they demand, that they ask for, because you're participating in this government, and so Jesus is giving a permission or, you know, some sort of approval to, to being in submission to the government that rules over you. If you really want to have a, a discussion on that, I would put, I would turn you to Romans 13. There's, there's other places that I would go that speak about how a Christian lives in a secular government. I don't know that this is the main passage that's on that, but, but there is some talk about that. But I'm just going to spoil it for all of you that, that think we're going to hear this morning talk about politics. I don't think that's what this passage is about. 
I don't think that's really the point that Luke is including this for. I don't think it's a commentary on how we are to operate and pay our taxes. I don't think that's what's going on here. Let's look at this event again and see what's going on. You'll remember in the past few weeks, or just look ahead if you've got your Bible out, just look ahead here at the few chapters or verses before in Luke. He's just cleansed the temple. He's come in. He's turned tables over. He's driven out the money changers. He's, he's keeping them from, from this business that they've set up. And he's infuriated the religious leaders. They aren't happy with him showing up. And then he goes on. They, they try to trick him. Who gives you the right with this question on authority? Who gives you the right to do this? And Jesus turns the question around and Basically, they have to confess their unbelief or they have to kind of just put their tail between their legs and walk away because they won't affirm John the Baptist and what his message was. And so there's this this conflict that just the heat is increasing and increasing. So then he tells the parable of the wicked servants. And it's a condemnation, outright condemnation of the religious leaders who have rejected God, they rejected his prophets and rejected God himself. He's exposed their hard hearts. But sadly, in, in the exposing of their hard hearts, they don't, they're not broken. They, they double down on their hardness. They double down on the, the Puritans have a saying that the, the same sun that melts the ice bakes the clay. And there's, the sun is shining in. Here is Jesus shows up. He's the light that's shining. And sometimes the sun shines and it melts the cold hearts. But sometimes, as in this instance, it's shining upon the hard hearts and they're just getting harder. Their hearts are just getting harder. They do not repent and cling to Christ, but instead, as verse 19 says, they seek to lay hands on him. For they perceive that he told this parable against them. Now, they don't want to lay hands. It's not to give him a hug. It's not to pray for him by laying hands on him. They want to seize him. They want to give him to the authorities. They want him to go to jail. They want him dead. They want him out of the way. But Jesus, they're, they're afraid to do it. They can't, just, they, they can't just do that. They have to get him to incriminate himself. Either against the authorities or against the people. So... They're, they're afraid to, to just do this. So they have to find a trick. So they send these spies, right? These are not honest people. These are not, they're, they're saying true things, possibly. Verse 21, we know you speak and teach rightly. We know that you show no partiality and truly teach the way of God. That is flattery. They don't believe it for a second. Their hearts are not behind it. They have spoken it to Jesus and they don't mean it. They're trying, they're sent as spies, pretending to be sincere. And they bring up this question. Don't forget this part of the narrative. Who brings up the topic of taxes? It's the spies. It's the pretenders. They want to get Jesus in trouble and they've really put him in a tough position. They put him on the horns of a dilemma. He's got two options in front of him. Is it just, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar, to give tribute to Caesar, or is it not? They put him in a position that any answer than the one that he gave would have given him a whole heap of trouble. 
Should the Jewish people, is a question, pay taxes, give tribute to Caesar? It's likely a tax that every male had to pay to, to keep the government running. They charged a tax, and so they had to get a tax, and you had to pay it to Roman rule. Because the reality is, they were a Roman-occupied nation. Well, you know this, you know, because of the Palm Sunday, everyone thinks Jesus is going to come in. And liberate them from Rome. They're under Roman occupation. They are an occupied, a controlled nation. They are not independent. They have a ruler. And so every time they, they have to pay this tax, it's a reminder. You're not your own. You're owned by somebody else. It's a reminder their country is not their own. They are ruled and conquered by a pagan nation, which was an offense to a faithful Jew. This was their promised land. This was the area God had given to them. And every time they pay an tax, they're confessing that Rome is against them. So it's an offense. If Jesus says to them, you know, you should pay your taxes. You should support the Romans. He's, he's turning his back against his entire faith community who is insulted by Roman occupation. So he can't just come out and say, yeah, you should pay your taxes because that's giving tax, that's giving support to the Roman authorities. But if he says, no, you shouldn't give to Caesar what's Caesar's, well, all of a sudden, all they have to do is go to the Roman authorities and say, hey, this guy's teaching rebellion. This guy's teaching insurrection. He's telling people not to pay the taxes. And what's going to happen? They're going to come and arrest him. They're going to get rid, their plan is to get rid of Jesus. Either by he loses his following by coming out in support of Rome, or he goes to jail because he's, because he's defying Rome. Those are the only two answers they've provided for him. But if Jesus answers either way, this, this is what would happen. But Jesus is too wise for their trick. He answers in a way no one can object to. The coins that they are using is Caesar's. He, he asks them for a coin, which is an interesting. He doesn't pull one out of their own purse. He didn't say, hey, Judas, who's the money keeper, give me a coin. He says to them, give me one of your coins, basically. And they dig in their pocket. And what, lo and behold, what do they have in their pocket? Roman coins. They're in the Roman economy. And so he's, he's bringing out this coin. Whose image is on the coin? Well, we get what's going on here. Caesar's image. Well, if you're agreeing to be in Caesar's economy, then give to Caesar whatever is Caesar's. But in this, in this way, why Jesus is saying it's an interesting dilemma. Give to Caesars that which is Caesars and give to God that which is God. But isn't everything that is Caesars God's? I mean, how, is there anything that is Caesars that isn't God's first and foremost? I mean, it's, it's, how does this, it, how does he go in this direction? If it makes you ask this question, is there anything that is Caesar's, that isn't first God's? And the answer to that is no. There is nothing that is anything that isn't God's. He is the sovereign of the universe. Everything that is, is because of Him. There is nothing that is not His. From the largest macro pieces of the universe to the tiniest dust mites floating around in this room, every single piece of this creation is God's. There is nothing that is Caesar's that isn't first God's. In this answer, Jesus has affirmed what the authorities wanted to hear, which is give to Caesar's that which is Caesar's, 
and what the faithful Jew wanted to hear. Give to God what's God's. He's, 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 he's affirmed both desires in the one sentence. Give to Caesar's that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. It's an amazing, an amazing statement. He has affirmed what the authorities would want to hear and yet he has reinforced his commitment of radical commitment to God as the sovereign ruler. Now, why do I think Jesus thinks those ways? I mean, am I just cooking that up? How do I, why do I think that's the, the logic here behind Jesus. Well, if you look back in John chapter 19, this is at the end of his conversations with, with Herod, or with Pilate, in John chapter 19. This is at the very end of his trial, getting close to crucifixion. They go out and, and they say, we have a law in verse 7. The Jews answer, he doesn't want to crucify him. The Jews answer him in John 19, 7. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. We can imagine Pilate breaks out in cold sweats. This, this language, son of God, what are you talking about? And so Pilate heard this statement. He's even more afraid in verse 8. He entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent. Isaiah 53, Jesus gives no answer. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Pilate, you're in charge, but only insofar as God's in charge and he put you in charge. Jesus has a, a very clear economy of, yeah, give to Caesars that which is Caesars, but we all know everything is really God. Caesars is Caesar only because God has put Caesar there. This is, this is his understanding. This is the way that Jesus is seeing the rule. So in the same way, back in this text, Jesus is saying to give to Caesar what is his because God has put him there. And at this answer, they're, they're stunned. The religious leaders are stunned. He replied perfectly. But what, what is their frustration? They, they just, they, what is this? What is the point of Luke including their frustration, right? Because Luke, we, he's, written, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that God is guiding chosen men who are inspired by God to write these things down for us. But why is Luke, what, what is, why is he putting this in this story in here? There's something he's trying to communicate. And I don't think it's about taxes. I don't think it's about taxes. Their main goal is to, is not understand taxes. Their main goal is to get Jesus silenced and they're unable to. They are not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, what verse 26 says. So what is the big idea? Jesus will not die on anyone else's schedule or for any other purposes but his own. Jesus will go silent in a few days. Jesus will be put to death by the authorities, but he will do so when he decides to do so. He will do so when he decides to. And Luke is building this tension for us. Look at him scrambling. We got to get him caught. We got to get him caught. We've got, to, we've got to get him silenced. We've got to make him quiet. We've got to get rid of Jesus. And they try and try and try. And every time Jesus escapes, he asks them a question back. He gives them an answer. They can't catch him until they finally do. Which is to, 
this tension is, is saying something to us. It's revealing two very important two truths. First, Jesus will have his way. He will do what he wants to do. But secondly, that means that when he does finally die, he has something very important that he is doing. He is fulfilling his mission. He will not die for anyone else's schedule or for anyone else. He's not going to die for the Pharisee's mission. He's going to die for his mission. He's not going to be subjected to their purpose. Jesus has come for his purpose and he will fulfill his purpose, which should make us then listen very closely when we start talking about Good Friday, Easter, all of these things. We start talking about Jesus dying on the cross. How did that happen? This man is uncatchable. This man is unimpeachable. He, he gets his, he's too wise for everyone that tries to argue him until all of a sudden he isn't and he is caught and he is put on a cross to die. And it makes Jesus, Luke is building this tension so that we'll see the death of Jesus and its great purpose that surrounds it. That's why I think Luke 13 is so pivotal. He's giving this answer, Luke chapter 13. Uh, the Pharisees say to him, get away. They're, again, the Pharisees trying to get rid of Jesus. It's all through Luke chapter 13, verse 31. That very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. He's not calling Herod good looking. It's a, it's a slight. Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Jesus is going to fulfill his purpose on his schedule. He will do exactly what he wants to do, which should make us really think hard. This man who could have done anything chooses, evades, evades, evades death until he decides, no, I'm not going to evade it anymore. I'm giving up my life. No one takes it from me, he says in John, in the Gospel of John. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. What is that plan? That plan is to save sinners by the giving of himself as a sacrifice for sins. The plan from before the foundation of the world is that God would accomplish the salvation of his people. Sinners who repent and trust in Christ through this sacrificial death on the cross that happens at just the right time. This is the mission that Jesus is on, to live the righteous life we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve so that everyone, everyone of you sitting in this room, and I know I see some of your faces a lot and whatever, but I'm telling you, right, everyone in this room, Repenting and trusting in this work on the cross can be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God forever. This is the promise that comes to us. This is Jesus' work. And nothing was going to keep him from accomplishing this at just the right time. All the things he could have done. He could have avoided death forever, right? This is the guy who tells tornadoes to go away. This is the guy who takes a sea that's going like crazy and then says be still and it goes like glass it's just still not a ripple this is his command 
This man can do whatever he wants to do. This God-man didn't even have to come to earth. You do realize that, right? There was no obligation on his part to come and rescue any of us. That first sin could have wiped out the entire universe and he would have been just to have done so. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Instead, he sends his son. He could have avoided the incarnation altogether. But as Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 says, we see him, speaking of Jesus, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus came and his purpose was to taste death for everyone who looking to him in repentance and faith would be reconciled to God. I want you to know and be certain of that this morning. I think that's why Luke includes this conversation so that you would know, so that I would know Jesus' death was not a cosmic accident. It was a purposeful event orchestrated by him to save you. Could have done any number of things. And what does he, he avoids, avoids, avoids until he decides no longer I'm avoiding on the Passover. I am going to the cross to go up as a sacrifice so that sinners like all of us would be saved. Do you hear the Luke builds this tension so that our minds will be blown that God would do this. No need on his part. Easy to get out of. And he goes ahead and he goes to the cross. Know that and be certain of it this morning. Jesus goes to the cross of his own will and for his purpose. And it is to save sinners. And I plead with you this morning to embrace that. To embrace that hope, that reality, that truth, that glorious truth, the glorious good news of a gospel, either for the first time ever. Maybe you finally see your own sinfulness, that you deserve, you have fallen way short, way off the map of holiness, and you need forgiveness. That is what Christ has done for you. You are in deep need of a Savior, and here He is. Maybe for the first time, or if you're a believer in this place this morning, I want you to turn to this good news again and again and again. Turning to the hope, the, the joy that is found in this gospel. The truth that God loves you and lived and died with a purpose to save you. To bring forgiveness for you. That is why we celebrate communion every Sunday here putting on a tangible display before us this reality, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I, I, as much as I can plead with a crowd of you, don't come lightly to this table, to the meal this morning. Don't come lightly. Consider. Consider your deep need for forgiveness. Consider and despair of your own sin and your own effort to try to get righteousness and trust in Christ who gave his life, died a purposeful death to cleanse you from all sin. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Is our fighter verse coming up, Ephesians 2? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in sins, by grace you have been saved. 
By grace you have been saved. God setting His affections on you, working His purposes to save sinners. Make that your hope, your anchor today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do the work only you can do in this room this morning. If any are in this place and do not know your son in this saving way, God, I pray that you would break hearts before you to cry out in desperation that, God, you would reach in and bring new life and bring forgiveness. And for those in this room who who've known this peace, God, I pray that you would re-illuminate it. Just awaken our eyes afresh. As David says in Psalm 51, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You did not go to the cross on anyone's agenda but your own. And that agenda was to save sinners. God, may we rejoice in that reality in this place this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.